Several decades ago now, V.P. Black was preaching at a small congregation. He was in college. was preaching for him every other week. And so twice a month he would go to this congregation. An older preacher friend of his came to him and said, Brother Black, you ever preached any sermons on giving and stewardship and money? And at the time, Brother Black was in his 20s, and he said, no, I didn't know the Bible said anything about it. And the preacher said, yeah, that's all kinds of stuff about it. You ought to study it up and get a lesson going. So he did. He studied it and found out that, sure enough, the Bible says all kinds of stuff about money. In fact, what he found out was, you know, as he did some research, he's got four, 1,400 verses in the Bible about money or stewardship or giving, about one out of every other parable of Jesus deals with giving or stewardship. One out of six verses in the New Testament have something to do with money or giving. And Brother Black was stunned because he had never studied the subject, had never really looked at it. And so he was so excited he was going to preach this lesson. And I remember him telling me this when I was in Montgomery. He said that he was excited because he was going to go pick up his girlfriend at the time, who later, of course, was his wife for many decades. And he was going to impress her kind of with this new lesson that he had gotten up, and he was excited about preaching it. And so he stood up that Sunday morning and preached a lesson, his first lesson ever, on giving and stewardship. And this was a congregation that was run by men's meetings. There weren't any elders. It was a small, rural congregation. And right after he did that, the man that was basically kind of in charge of things stood up publicly and announced, Brother Black has been preaching for us the last, Several months, every other Sunday, we'll have someone else to take his spot from now on. Fired him publicly, on the spot, for preaching on stewardship. Now, I don't know how that would have affected me as a young preacher. I might have thought, well, hold on just a second. That's not how it affected Brother Black. In fact, Brother Black said if that was how the brotherhood was going to react to biblical preaching on stewardship and giving, he was going to preach on it every chance he got. And so he started studying it. He ultimately ended up writing, I think, some 15 books on the subject, preached on it for over 55 years or more. But what was interesting was after he was fired from this particular congregation, he was then still preaching all over, and one of the congregations had invited him to preach a gospel meeting. I think it was Sunday through Friday affair. And one of his friends had taken over his preaching slot at that small congregation where he had been fired. And the friend stood up to the congregation and said, Hey, Brother Black is preaching a meeting over here at so-and-so congregation. Anybody that wants to go, I'll be driving if you want to go with me. And guess who did want to go? Well, the man who had fired Brother Black wanted to go. And he rode with the friend of Brother Black's. And he showed up at the gospel meeting. And it just so happened that evening, Brother Black was preaching on Stewardship, right? And so Brother Black delivered his message, lesson on stewardship. And the friend was telling Brother Black about this, and he was relating this story to me many, many years after it happened. And he said that that friend told him that that, that man got in the car and was just fuming. said he could hardly talk for 10 minutes, just angry. And he said, that VP Black will never amount to nothing. He said, I told him to quit meddling and quit preaching on stewardship, and he's still at it. Well, Brother Black was telling me this with a twinkle in his eye after he'd been preaching on stewardship for 50 years. And he said, not bragging at all, not trying to take any credit, but we've just run some real, real loose estimations of what my preaching on stewardship and teaching on stewardship has done. And he said, we calculated it's brought in about $100 million to the Lord's church and things that can be done in the Lord's church. And Brother Black had been preaching faithfully about giving and stewardship 
for almost 60 years. Now, you know how the stewardship sermon goes, don't you? I mean, you know how it goes. You know, lots of times a person will stand up and say, well, you know, the elders asked me to preach on stewardship. Now, the elders didn't ask me to preach on stewardship. I, I get to preach on stewardship because here's what I get to do. It's one of my favorite subjects in the entire world because when I was in my 20s, I had no idea the Bible said anything about it. And then, when I realized that the message was so exciting and life-bringing and thrilling, I started studying it and realized a lot of people hadn't heard this and they need to know it. Now, I preach on giving every chance that I get if I get an open opportunity and it's not on what I normally preach on, which is the idea of a Christian apologetics and Christian evidence, things like that. I, I do that most, but if someone says, hey, you can just do whatever you want, stewardship, I'm on. Now, lots of times, boy, that preacher will stand up and he'll say, you know, it is January, it's first of the year, and we, we do have a budget. I think we presented the budget to you guys. You see what's going on, and uh, I'm really going to need help with that budget this year. And I, I, I'm not begging for money. I, I hate to really bring it up, but the Bible does talk about it. And so, you know, let's, let's get through this 12-minute lesson on giving. And we won't have to deal with it for another two years. And that's about how it's presented. That's the wrongest approach. I don't even know if wrongest is a word. But it's, it, it ought to be if it's not. The worst possible approach to the topic of giving that could be taken when teaching on the subject. And here's why. Because that approach, at least emotionally, challenges the reliability of Jesus' word. And now let me tell you what I mean. And remember, in Acts chapter 20, Paul said, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, do you believe that? Oh, you know what? You okay? It's like when I have a sixth grade class and I a class and I ask them what's the most important thing in in their lives. You know what they have to answer, don't you? I mean, they all have to answer God because they're in a Bible class and in the sixth grade class. They all have to answer. When I ask you, do you believe it's more blessed to give than receive? What? mentally are you forced to do while you're sitting there in the church building and I'm preaching from God's word. Mentally, you've got to say, yeah, I believe that, absolutely. God said it, Jesus Christ, well, yeah, absolutely. All right, let me just ask you a real quick question. If your boss, where you work this year, came to you and said, it's January, you know, we've, we've actually been having some really good, making some good financial progress in our business, and I would like to give you a 5% raise and you don't have to do any more work. There's not going to be anything else entailed. I just want to give you 5%. Do you want it? I mean, let's say you make $50,000. 5% of $50,000 is what? Uh, $2,500. I mean, work with me here. Do you want an extra $2,500 this year? Absolutely. I've never, never to date met a person who says, you know what? No, nah, boss, I really appreciate that. That's really nice. I've got plenty. You know, really don't want that 5% raise. Thank you very much. But I, I really was hoping you'd dock me five. Just because, you know, I've never seen anybody do that. Never. If somebody says, do you want 5%? Yes. Okay, so what are you excited about in that instance? You're excited about receiving. About getting something. Hey, yes, I'll take an extra $2,500 this year. That will be perfect for us to go up to Gatlinburg and ride go-karts twice. I mean, that's exactly all you'll get to do with it. 
I'll take it. Never met a person who says, I don't want the 2500 Now, what if somebody stands up and says, I know right now a place in Haiti where there are literal starving children that really do need food. And for 200 bucks a month, you personally could feed these kids and it would keep them alive. Who wants in? Now, let me ask a simple question. Would we have 100% participation with, hey, I want to give you $2,500? 100%. What percentage of participation would we have when we say, hey, I've got an opportunity for you to give $2,400 and you can literally save the lives of 100 kids this next year? Well, hold on just a second. I thought it was more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, it is. But sometimes it's hard for us to maintain the reality of that in our lives, isn't it? You know, several years ago, a man by the name of Arthur C. Brooks, he's not a Christian, wasn't trying to prove anything from the Bible, wasn't trying to really validate anything about giving. He was really just showing, he was trying to, he was trying to show that the conservative Christian mindset never leads people to give more than the liberal political mindset. And that was his stated thesis. That I'm just going to show it doesn't matter if you're a conservative Christian or if you're politically uh, liberal thinking that everybody gives about the same. Now, when he did the research, what he found was he was exactly wrong. He thought that he was going to prove something that he proved the exact opposite of that. And he said, basically, if a person is a conservative Christian who believes what the Bible says, there is no category of giving, whether time, money, etc., that people who aren't conservative thinking Bible believers would beat them in. Not, not a category. But he said, what I learned even more than that was that giving is something that benefits the giver more than anything else basically in the world. And he said, from a secular mindset, he said, people often go that, that are nonprofit workers and they'll go to a person and say, hey, you know, we've got a struggling budget, whatever. He said, but if you look at what the giving of the money does for the giver, you would change your entire strategy. And you would go to them and say, I have an opportunity for you to make your life extraordinarily better. Do you want it? You know, that's the real question. Do you want your life to be better? Now, here's what I would pose to you. And let's really think about this. Why in the world does God ask you to give anything? Now, he does. Don't get me wrong. I mean, in the Old Testament, he asked for at least a 10% once a year. And if you add up all of the other giving offerings, the peace offerings and the free will offerings and the various different leave the corners of your fields and the firstborn of any cow or of any sheep. Or it all, if you add it all up, it's about 33%. And God asked the children of Israel to do that. And in the New Testament, he asks for us to be liberal, generous givers. Why? Why does he ask that from us? Is it because God needs your money? Now, that's almost a ridiculous question, isn't it? Could God finance the things he wants done 
in any way he wanted to. Could he know of somebody who is a very generous liberal giver that he would know if this person happened to find oil on their property, they would give multiplied millions of dollars and it would go to the things I want done? Could God miraculously or at least providentially work out a way so that he made sure money went to places? Absolutely, positively. So why in the world does he even let you be a part of it? Why does he ask you to give money? You know, what you think lots of times when the preacher stands up here and says, well, hey, we've got to preach on giving. It's almost like they're trying to get you to do something. They're trying to manipulate you into being No, 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 that's not what's happening. God doesn't have to let you be a part of his work. You know, it's interesting to me. I did a little research on Augusta, Georgia there, the, the Masters Golf Course. You know, it's one of the most prestigious, one of the most elite one of the most close-knit, tightly sealed deals that there is. Only a few people get to be members, and those members lots of times will pass their membership down to their children and their grandchildren and their grandchildren grandchildren their great-grandchildren. Do you know what happens when they think that you no longer really belong in the club there in Augusta? You know what they do? They don't kick you out. They just don't send you a bill. See, at the end of the year, they calculate up all their expenses and then what they feel like they need to operate the next year or whatever, and then they send all the members a bill and they let them pay. Now, do you know how many people in the world would love the opportunity to pay to be in the Masters of the Augusta Golf Course there? And if you happen to be behaving in a way that they don't think is... Uh, representative of what they stand for at the end of the year, you just don't get a bill. You don't get to be a part of the work. Now, we might look at that and think, well, that's ridiculous, the snobby, whatever, elitist mentality. Okay, I understand that. But when you come to God's work, God's asking you to give, not because he needs you. In fact, I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians. And in the book of Philippians, you're going to look in chapter 4, and it's been a whole discussion here in Philippians chapter 4 on Paul receiving money from the Philippian church. And he's real excited about what the Philippian church has done for him, very much like I'm excited about what this congregation has done for me and my work at Apologetics Press for many, many years. You guys have been one of my most faithful supporters and have been supporting the work and have had us come and talk about the inspiration of the Bible, existence of God, and things of that nature. And it's thrilling, the fellowship that we get to have because of that mutual uh, sharing of things. And that's what's going on with the Philippian church here. Paul is talking about there in verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord that now at last your fellowship for me, your care for me has flourished, though you lacked opportunity. But you certainly did care. He said, you've been trying basically to give me money recently and there hadn't really been a chance for you to send it, but you finally were allowed, finally had the opportunity to send it to me. And then he goes on to say one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now this is in the context of him saying, I'm glad you sent the money. It was exciting to me, but I don't, I don't need it. And what I mean by that is, I'm going to get along with it or without it. I've learned how to be full, and I've learned how to be hungry. I've learned how to abound, and I've learned how to suffer need. He said, if you didn't send that money, I, I would make it. But, he said, you have done well in that 
you shared in my distress. Now look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. He says, do you know why I take money from you? It's not that I want your money. It's that you're supporting the Lord's work and it's fruit that abounds to your account. You're storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven and listen, there's no other way to do this kind of storing than to be a liberal, cheerful giver. I'm not asking for your money. I want to see you give so that you get the benefit of giving. Wow. Uh, you ever seen a, a three-year-old help make cookies? You know, it's an interesting process. I have had three children. I've got a 17-year-old now, a 15-year-old daughter, and a 12-year-old son. And our 15-year-old daughter, when my mom, when my wife, rather, would get there in the kitchen and she'd start making cookies. Oh, when my daughter was little, she would want to help. Do you think my wife let my daughter help make cookies? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You know why she let my daughter help make cookies? Because it was such a difficult task for her that the assistance of a three-year-old would cause it to be much more smooth and efficient and get the job done so more effectively that that's why you pull in the necessary assistance of a three-year-old, right? Okay, you go through the process with me. My wife is there. She's about to make some cookies, and my little daughter comes in, and she says, Can I help? And my wife says, Yeah. Well, the butter's been sitting out getting soft, and my wife says, Okay, just unroll that butter and put it in the cookie bowl there. You know, I, I have since realized that I had come to some fairly legitimate skill in flipping butter. Now, I don't know if you have flipped a whole lot of butter. And what I mean by that is the butter is designed, the, the packaging, so that if you grab one of the folds of it, it's that one that's on the top, and if you pull out the two sides and grab the top with just a little bit of wrist flick, that butter will cascade down the packaging and hardly leave any butter. On the packaging and all, it's, it's really well designed. You know what three-year-olds feel like they're being robbed of when that happens? The feeling of the texture of smushy butter in the package. Now, it's really neat feeling if you have butter that's been sitting out and it's softened, and that three-year-old gets it, and she maybe pokes it a little and thinks, hmm, this is really neat. You know, once you smush that butter, it doesn't flip anymore. There's no more flipping to butter that's been smushed. And when you try to flip it, well, now you've got to take the knife and scrape it off of the packaging. And, I mean, you know what just straight butter tastes like, but three-year-olds don't. And they feel like they need to sample the butter to make sure it's okay for everyone to eat, of course. And so they take their little fingers and they stick it in that butter. Sample straight butter. I know, it's disgusting, isn't it? But three-year-olds don't think so. They love it. And now you've got butter all over their fingers, all over the packaging, and all over the kitchen. When if your three-year-old hadn't been involved, you could have just flipped it and the butter would be in there. 
Well, then the three-year-old feels like they need to help with the flower, don't they? Okay, and boy, you let your three-year-old help with the flower, and man, number one, they actually feel like they have to taste the flower. I mean, they feel like they got to taste anything, and it's tasting it with the same two fingers that they tasted the butter. And now you got slobbery butter flower fingers all over the place. Okay, and then, now here's what I learned. Here's what I have subsequently learned. And you don't know you do this if you cook any, but you do if you were to watch yourself on video. You, as a person who are experienced with cooking, especially you ladies mostly, uh, you, you take the flour, and here's the, the bowl lip, and most of the time you just flip it. Just flip it right over the lip. Now, you flip it, like let's say I'm lifting, and here's the bowl lip. You just put it up to the lip and just flip it right over because that way there's no spillage from the flour to the bowl. It's real easy. Three-year-olds, have, they, they haven't mastered that skill. In fact, they kind of like to see how flour does in the air. So here's the bowl, here's the flour. All they would have to do is move it over two inches and flip it. They feel like it's better in a high arch. I mean, flour everywhere. And then, at the end of the process, after you don't even know how much flour has made it into the bowl, so your recipe is getting kind of wonky anyway, and you don't really know how much butter is there and several bites of sugar have been taken, you finally get something that looks like a cookie and you put it in the oven. You hope it turns out right. Lots of times it does. And you pull that cookie out and you get your three-year-old daughter to come in there and give her a plate of these to take to her dad so that she can say what? Dad, look what we've done. I made you cookies. Why do you get her to help? Well, because you need her help. It just wouldn't go right without. No, no, no. You let her help because she needs to be part of the process. Because she needs to have a part and to feel like she is important and valuable in the system. Now, God's not asking for your money because somehow he needs it. Because somehow without you, he's going broke. That he can't get it done. And, oh, if if you as a congregation don't give like you're supposed to this time, then the work of the Lord's going to clap. Oh, God's going to, you know, God is going to get done what he wants done, whether you help him or not. But he wants you to have the opportunity to help him. And that's what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4. I don't seek the gift. Look, if I have to go hungry, if I have to eat ramen noodles for the next three years, I'll make it. But I'm giving you an opportunity to partner with me in the work because you need to do it. And it'll be better for you because it really is more blessed to Give, then receive. Who was getting the blessing between Paul and the Philippians in this chapter? The Philippians. Now they thought, probably like most people think, that Paul's getting, hey man, you know, we, we got to send Paul that money. I bet he's real excited now. I bet he's real happy that he can eat much, much better than he was eating. Well, Paul says, well, I'm, I'm glad to. But the real blessing, the real blessing is what you get to experience. Philippians, you're getting to preach the gospel to soldiers in the Roman army who never would have gotten to hear the gospel through me, and that's an opportunity that you can't get anywhere else. You know, as we look at that idea, I want to take you back to the Old Testament passage that I think is so very interesting. 
that I think has so much to talk about this idea of giving and the idea of the blessings of giving and things of that nature. You look in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, three probably the most famous passage in the Bible on giving. You know the way I always find Malachi. It's the last book in your Old Testament. I go to Matthew chapter 1 and then flip back. And there's one little page that covers 400 years of intertestamental period that divides the Old and the New Testament. You go back to Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. You arrive at a situation where the people in Malachi's day completely had misunderstood giving. At the beginning of Malachi chapter 1, you see that they're bringing crippled sacrifices to God. And they're giving him his, their leftovers. And they're trying to do everything they can to minimize their giving. And at the beginning of the book, he says, would you do that to your governor? You know, if, if your governor said, I want one-tenth of all of your cows, would you bring in the ones with a broken leg? Would you bring the ones that had some skin disease or something like that? No, you wouldn't. Your governor wouldn't even accept them. And yet you're trying to pawn that stuff off on God. And so he comes to chapter 3 where he gets real serious. And he starts there in verse 8 and he says, Will a man rob God? You know what a rhetorical question is. I have illustrated rhetorical questions for many years with this simple illustration. A rhetorical question is one that's asked for emphasis and not for information. You know, years ago when I was growing up, my dad would say, son, do you want to spank Do you think my dad thought I really ever wanted a spanking? Like today, he was going to ask me and I was going to say, dad, thanks for asking. It was kind of embarrassing, but I really did feel like I needed a spanking. Yes, dad, please give me a spanking. No, no, a rhetorical question is when you ask it for emphasis, not for information. Son, do you want a spanking? What's the rhetorical answer to do you want a spanking? No! You don't want a spanking. And so what he meant by that was if you're involving yourself in a certain behavior, you stop doing that certain behavior because if you keep doing that certain behavior, you're going to get a one. Okay, you're going to get a spanking, right? Will a man rob God? The rhetorical answer to that is what? No, you don't rob God. Why wouldn't you rob God? Why does it not make sense to rob God? Well, if you were a bank robber and you knew for absolute positive fact that the minute your foot stepped over the threshold, the bank authorities would know exactly who you are they would know how to find you, and they would have the resources to apprehend you immediately. Would you ever rob a bank where you knew you were going to get caught the second you walked out? Well, not unless you wanted to go to jail. You wouldn't. It wouldn't make any sense. And so what Malachi is trying to say is, it is ridiculous to think that anybody would steal from God. Now, he then poses this challenge to the Israelites, and he says, yet you have robbed me. Now, in the next session, we're going to be looking at this idea of stewardship and how God owns everything and that we are just keeping God's stuff for Him. But that was his point right here as he's talking to the Israelites. He said, now you guys have stolen from God. And they're wanting to know, well, how have we stolen from God? We don't feel like we have taken anything from God's treasury. You know, I was talking to somebody about this, and they said, yeah, we used to have a family that would come visit on Sunday mornings, and they would make change in the plate. And they would make change where they got more out of the plate than they put in. They literally were taking money out of the plate. You ever done that? You ever stolen money from the plate outside? You know, you ever gone into the uh, resource room and decided that 
you know what, you felt like you needed a new pack of Sharpies at your house and you were going to take every one that the congregation had and you stole all the resources out of the resource room. Now, I'm not talking about the, hey, I'm going to borrow a Sharpie and it hadn't come back for two years. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you got to take some tape. Oh, I'm talking intentionally stolen stuff from the church. You ever done that? Most of us would say, no, well, I don't, you don't steal stuff from the church. I mean, you don't steal at all, but you certainly don't want to steal it from the church. And yet God says to the Israelites, you have robbed me. And now, their next question is how? We don't, we don't know what you're talking about. So they say to him, in what way have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now, lots of times somebody will say, Kyle, you're talking about the tithe. You know, that's an Old Testament concept. What do you... Okay, here's what I will say. Absolutely, factually. Do you know that in no place in the Scripture is anybody commended for being a faithful liberal giver, old or new, who gave less than 10% of their income? You read a percentage three times in the New Testament. Three times. One of them is the widow giving her two mites. What percent was that? was that? 100. One of them is Zacchaeus, who said, I give 50% of all that I have. And the other one was the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what good thing do I need to do? And Jesus said, sell everything you've got. Now, it's interesting to me that that rich young ruler was following the commandments of the Old Testament, which meant he wasn't stealing and he was giving at least a tenth of his income. Now, there's a reason that what we teach on giving and stewardship is not called teaching the tithe. And here's why. Was that rich young ruler giving at least 10% of his income? Absolutely. He was keeping the commandments. Did he need to be giving more? You know, he had reached 10% of his income and he thought he was done. But he was the equivalent of a millionaire or more, and he should have been giving more, but his money was controlling his heart, and Jesus said that 10% ain't good enough for you. You should be giving more than that because you've let it control your life. Now, I believe that you are absolutely on firm ground to say that the Bible never commends a person as a generous, liberal, scriptural giver who gives less than 10% of their income. Here's why. Because it's not their money. It's God's. And so he comes to the people in Malachi's day, and he says, you're stealing from God. And they're saying, how? He says, if it's all my money, and I've asked you to give me a certain portion back, and you don't give it back to me, then, then you're taking it. Okay, so now, now listen to me. and try to, try to really put yourself in this position. What if you just realized you have literally been stealing from God. V.P. Black said that when he started learning about stewardship, he had never been a giver. He had been like a, a tipper. I got five bucks in my wallet and I'll just give it Sunday. Never been an intentional giver except. And he realized, I've never done this correctly. Now he did something I've never seen anybody do and God's not even asking the Israelites to do he said he began to calculate everything he made from the time he started making money and calculated 10% of that and started paying God back for all the money he hadn't been given. I've never seen anybody do that. Never even heard of it. 
And I don't even think God's asking the Israelites to do that here. I thought that was commendable. And guess what? If it's more blessed to give than receive, do you think B.P. Black was more blessed? Absolutely, positively. But here's what he says in the text. You've been stealing from it. What if you realize you literally have been stealing from God and you're a sincere, honest-hearted person? The next question is, what do I do? This is terrible. I've been stealing from God. What do I do? And here's what the text says. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and prove me now in this, says the Lord, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings that there will not be room to receive them. He said, you've been stealing from me, the whole nation. Every one of you have been cheating me. But if you will bring in what I've asked you to bring in, then I will open the windows of heaven for you and dump on you so many blessings that you will not even be able to hold them all. Now, I've asked a lot of people this question and never gotten the answer different from the one that you're going to give. Do you want to be blessed more than you are now? Yeah, I've never heard a person say, no, you know, really, I'd like my life to be worse. I'd really like less blessings today. In fact, I'd like to make some decisions that will bring about in my life less blessings before I walk out of this auditorium. Yes, I'd like less. Never had a person say that. Is every single person under the scope of understanding what God has to say, does everybody say, I want to be blessed more? Everybody. Well, what does God say? Here's why I love giving. Here's why I love preaching on giving. Here's why I love teaching on giving. I believe that with a single decision, one single decision, you can literally change so much about your life, and that's this decision. If you decided right now, today, before you walk out of this auditorium, I will never give God less than 10% of what He gives to me. If you make that decision right now, I believe this promise still absolutely stands to anybody who will read it that God will open up the windows of heaven and pour on you so many blessings and there'll be emotional blessings, there'll be spiritual blessings, they will be physical blessings, there will be so many blessings you won't even be able to hold them all and that's a promise from God. Now listen, do you remember what we talked about in the Bible class? If the Bible says it, what does that mean? It's always true. Now, here's what I find so interesting on this. He says, prove me now in this. You know, it's the only time in the Bible he ever says prove him, ever says test him. He says, basically, I know you don't believe this. I know you in Israel are not understanding and believing what I'm having to say, but test me in this. I'll end with this illustration and let the lesson be yours. When we had our second child... My dad and mom came to the hospital, and we had the video, and we were videoing everything going on. And my dad was sitting on the, oh, he was sitting on the floor at the time. And my son, who was about, I guess, two or so, getting close to two, he was up on the couch, and my son was jumping off of the couch into my dad's arms, his granddad. Oh, and they were having so much fun. I saw the action going on, saw the activity, and I thought, this is so exciting. So I was getting it on film, taping. And so my dad can't deny that this actually happened. I have it on record. Well, my son climbs up on that couch and my dad looks somewhere else and he's talking to somebody else, but he's got his arms out right here. My son jumps. Dad's not paying attention. 
drops him. Does not catch him. My son hits his head on the, well, it's only, you know, 28 inches couch, and it doesn't hurt him at all. He's got a little red mark, didn't even have a little, didn't even get a little goose egg, just a tiny little red mark. He's crying. My dad gives him, hugs him up, and realizes he's just broken some trust here. So he puts him back up on the couch, and he's trying to build the, and he's like, come on. What do you think my son did when he got back up on that couch after my dad dropped him? Oh, I think I'll just jump again. No. My dad's telling him to jump, and my son's. He's not having any. Why? Because my dad dropped him. Do you know who loves to hear lessons on giving and stewardship? People who are generous liberal givers. You know why? Because God never drops people. God asks you to give, not because he needs your money, but because you need to get the blessing that he can give you if you are a generous liberal giver. God says, I know this is hard for you to believe. I know you feel like you got bills and you got all kinds of stuff you got to take care of. I know, but if you will jump, I will catch you and I will pour on you more blessings than you can handle. You know that's exciting to me. It's thrilling to me. It's life changing to me. It's well, yeah, it's one of the singular most amazing, life changing, phenomenal ideas that I've ever run across in my life. And I've seen it change people's lives so many times to such a degree that you can't even put it into words. But there's a step before that, isn't there? You know, the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. But one of the aspects of that is that God doesn't just ask us to give money back to Him. It's His money anyway. But when Paul was writing about the Corinthian brethren, and he said, I'm commending them so much because of their generosity, and the reason that they were so generous is because they first gave themselves to God. You know, it might be that you're in this auditorium this morning and you've been struggling with the idea that I need to become a Christian, but I just haven't. I know that I need Christ in my life. I know that I need His forgiveness, but something's getting in your way. Do you need to become a Christian to give your life to Christ? Have you given yourself to God by believing in Jesus Christ, repenting of the sins that you've done, being willing to be buried in water baptism for the forgiveness of those sins after confessing the name of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? You see, the first thing you've got to do is be willing to give yourself to Christ. And now listen, it's more blessed to give than receive when you give yourself to God. All of the blessings that God has in store for you, the spiritual blessings, the forgiveness, the, well, you will have what Paul refers to as the peace that passes understanding. Is there st- something stopping you from giving your life to Christ this morning? If there is, get it out of the way. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation in any way, please do as we stand and as we sing.